I'm Dan Darling, and this is the Way Home Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the ERLC National Conference on August 25th and 26th. Visit ERLC.com slash events. Today, I'm joined by Mark DeMoss, founder and president of the DeMoss Group, the nation's largest public relations agency serving Christian organizations and causes. Mark is also an author of the Little Red Book of Wisdom, which has recently been revised. Mark served as the senior advisor for Mitt Romney's 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns. Mark was recently in Nashville for the NRB convention, and he sat down with me to discuss the shape of evangelical political engagement, civility, and the lessons he learned from his late father, Arthur DeMoss. Mark, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks. You're welcome. I love to talk to you about leadership. You have been a Christian leader in the evangelical world for a number of years. And um, I guess my first question would be, what are some things when you're talking to young ministry leaders, young leaders in the marketplace, um, you've even advised political leaders at times, what, what are some things that you think are important, two or three things that that you try to convey that are important for leadership? Well, I think probably nothing's more important than um, character and integrity. Um, I think it becomes more difficult to expect people to follow somebody who um, is lacking in either of those areas. So that's really a call to a really high personal standard in your own life. And uh, it's a reminder to, I'm not preaching, it's a reminder to me mm. as much as to anybody else. I think another thing would be um, hard work, a good work ethic. People will follow someone with a good work ethic more than they'll follow somebody without one. I know some uh, people that would be, you know, it's, it's interesting to me too. We tend to, I think, naturally equate titles with leadership mm-hmm. and size of organizations with leadership. In other words, we'll look at somebody that's president of a large organization and assume that they're a great leader. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that's not necessarily true. Um, and I, I could think of some people that I would say, you know, are, might be leading a large organization, but they they maybe don't work as hard as the whoever started the organization. Mm-hmm. And um, and people notice that. I think people, you know, people certainly in a in a work environment notice if the quote leader is working hard. And I, I mean, I think the leaders ought to be the hardest working people in an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think's changed from maybe when you first started working in ministry and and advising ministries and kind of thinking through leadership? And now, what dynamics have changed? Well, one, an obvious change, I think, is um, th- the advent of uh, social media mm-hmm. um, has put um, leaders on display in a way that wasn't really possible not very long ago, even mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And um, it's an area that concerns me because, you know, we're, we're here at a religious broadcasters convention and you'll hear a lot of folks talk about 
how social media, digital media can be a great tool for fulfilling the Great Commission, and it can be, but it can also be a tool, in my opinion, to distract from um, our missions as certainly as Christian organizations. And I'm concerned about the way many leaders use social media that many times reveals a, a bit of tone deafness, for example, for the about the people that they're leading. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, you, you, you look at a, a pastor of a church, let's say, who's, um, uh, and, and any church in America has people from all economic strata and, you know, and single moms working two jobs and people on hard times and people unemployed and people struggling to make ends meet. And then they might see their pastor... Their, their pastor's Instagram might look like someone that's like living this life of Riley, hopping around on airplanes and seeing you know palm trees and beaches and sidelines of Sporting baseball events, yeah. and football games. And it it said I, I gave a talk uh, recently at a big university, and I said um, it it's inconsistent at best for a Christian leader to say. My mission is to point people to Jesus, but then five times a day you post a picture that says, look at me. <laughs> so I, I have concerns about, I'm, I'm a bit of an outlier on, uh, admittedly, on social media. Um, there's a narcissism. But, but that, I, think there's a, can... I think there's a narcissism that really concerns me, mm-hmm. and it's trending, I think, in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about civility, because I think this dovetails with what you've just said like I guess first can you make the, the Christian case for civility and then maybe talk about why people are why we're so fractured and why we're so our rhetoric is so bad even among Christians yeah I think starting with Christians um, anyone who claims to follow Christ and and believe his word the scripture doesn't have an option mm. Civility is not an option that you can choose to to be or not be. We we uh, scripture's full of admonition to prefer others over yourself. To that that uh, you know a, a soft answer turns away wrath, and on and on you could go through scripture. And I I'm very discouraged, honestly, uh, about this subject nationally because I don't see like glimmers of hope in on this point because it, it's interesting when I when I did uh, I, I launched a civility project uh, I remember back, that. back in um, in 2010 and 11 and um, I made it as simple as you could make it and and asked people to commit just to be uh, civil in their public discourse to call out incivility when you see it. And um, I was amazed at the, the most, and, and I joined with a, uh, a liberal Democrat Jewish friend of mine named Lanny Davis, who had worked in the Clinton, Bill Clinton White House. And I was amazed, the, the most vitriolic, hateful emails I received during that two-year project 
were from people that identified themselves as evangelicals mm. or Christians or conservatives or Republicans. Mm. And conversely, the most encouraging, respectful, kind emails I got were from people who said, I'm a liberal Democrat, and it's refreshing to see you know, a conservative um, speak this way. And I thought, what a, what a tragedy that that would be the case. And I think we're, we, we've become so polarized. And they, I, here's my strongest case for, for a Christian on this point. And this really convicted me personally. I thought about this if, because um, this is the test, I, th I think this is sort of an acid test for uh, personal civility as a believer. And I try to ask myself this question. Would whatever I just said to this person, pick up whoever you want, fill in the blank, I'll just say Joe, Joe Blow, would, would whatever I said to Joe Blow make it more difficult for me to share Christ with him if I sat by him on an airplane in two weeks? If I had just blasted him or been disrespectful or sent him a hateful email and then I coincidentally wound up sitting next to him two weeks later on the airplane, would I be better positioned or worse positioned to share Christ with this person? And that, that, that convicted me that um, it's pretty difficult to kind of turn the corner and put on my Christian hat, which we should never take off, mm. if I've been disrespectful or uncivil to somebody. And boy, I just, and I'm not, I'm not perfect on this, but I sure pay attention to it. I think a lot of people, even Christians that listen to this or hear what you're saying or what I'm saying about civility, think that civility and courage can't coexist. They think that to be civil means that you're giving up something. Capitulation. Uh, yeah. Or, or compromise. Or courage means, you know, sort of being willing to say whatever and, and not having a sort of filter. Can you explain why that's not true? <laughs> yeah. You're, and you're absolutely right that I think a majority of people do think that, that, that uh, a civility is tantamount to compromise. And I tell you this, I haven't, I have not compromised that I'm aware of a single conviction of mine on any subject to any person. But maybe what I have compromised is a bit of volume in a conversation or, you know, the right to interrupt constantly. I might compromise on that, but that's not, um, I, I really think, honestly, it doesn't take much strength or courage to shout and raise your voice and interrupt somebody. It takes a lot more strength and courage to kind of wait your turn, choose your words, choose the better tone. And I think, you know, we, I believe we should win arguments on the strength of our ideas and the selection of our words, not on our volume. Uh, or animation, and and I think we get that confused a lot. And so what I think what you see a lot of times, if you know, if you if you observe a shouting match in a political landscape or a town hall meeting or whatever you want to think about, it's a pretty safe bet that there's a real lack of ideas and thinking 
in that room or in that exchange. And I'd rather be known for good thinking and making a good case than for being strident or, or you know, waving my arms and shouting somebody down. Yeah. And I, I mean, I give you an example of this too, where where it's just where incivility is really almost always counterproductive. Mm-hmm. I've, in fact, I don't know an exception to this. But you remember a few years ago at the president's State of the Union address, a Republican they were uh, the president said made a claim in his State of the Union address that. Um, that the uh, Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare, would not cover illegal uh, aliens. And a a Republican congressman, uh, whose name I forget right now, shouted out, you lie. And that incident captured national headlines for days. And the ironic thing is, nobody in, in all this attention Nobody was debating or analyzing the truth or falseness of the claim about who Obamacare would cover or not cover. They weren't debating the merits of the Affordable Care Act. The whole, all the analysis was about the fact that a congressman shouted, you lie. Mm -hmm. So he was ineffective in making his case. He got a lot of attention, but he he didn't further his case because of the way he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what can Christian leaders do to help teach their people to be both courageous and civil? So what, you know, when there's injustice around them to speak up and to be active, but also to do it with civility. What are some ways that Christian leaders, parents can sort of model this and also teach this style of engagement? One way would be to um, make an effort make a legitimate, tangible effort to actually meet or talk or get to know people who are outside of your tribe. You mentioned mm-hmm. tribes earlier. I think most Republicans don't actually know many Democrats. I think mm-hmm. most evangelicals don't know many or any secular people mm-hmm. or or Mormons or mainline denomination people. We, we tend to, you know, hang out in our tribes. And I remember um, I had a meeting um, around this civility project at the White House um, several years ago with uh, the president's um, senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett. And she told me a story about having, um, having had a dinner with um, Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, and she said, you know, it's difficult to be hateful towards someone you've had in your home for dinner. Mm, that's a great point. And, and so I think as, as we get outside of our tribe and meet people, I mean, this, this is how I forged this wonderful relationship with Lanny Davis, who naturally would have, there would be no reason he would be on my radar screen or in my life. We, we disagree on virtually every issue politically but man we're both fathers we're both husbands mm-hmm. we're both citizens of America yeah. and we have a great relationship mm-hmm. and so I, I would say that's a that's a certainly a first step and then maybe the second is just this reminder like keep this in your mind could I uh, if, if I'm having a political debate today could I 
share my testimony or share Christ with this same person tomorrow. And and if, I think when you think about that, if if you're really trying to follow Christ, you'll change your you'll change something about your political debate if you're thinking in your mind, what if I what if this guy asked me tomorrow? Or, first of all, they're not going to ask us about our faith mm-hmm. if they think we've been uncivil or rude or they've read our Facebook timeline or something yeah they read (laughs) yes exactly Um, so you know as Christians it's really about what's what's our mission and if our mission is to share Christ with people I don't know how you share Christ with people that you've blasted on Twitter and you've blasted in your on your blog and you've blasted on you know Sean Hannity or you've blasted on whatever and then think you could uh, ultimately have a witness with this person. What does Christian faithfulness look like in a changing culture? Join us in Nashville for the ERLC National Conference, August 25th and 26th. We will be joined by Russell Moore, Matt Chandler, Andy Crouch, Gabe Lyons, Brian Luritz, Alyssa Wilkinson, Karen Pryor, and others. We'll discuss politics, sports, business, art, discipleship, and more. Find out more at erlc.com events and use the coupon code WAYHOME for a 20% discount. You've written a lot about how lessons you learned from your father, mm-hmm. you know, what was it about what you saw in him that's kind of shaped the way you think about these things, about civility, about leadership, about, you know, sort of engagement in the public square? Well, one of the, so my father died uh, when I was 17, just before my senior year in high school. And, um, and the greatest person in my life still, even though I only had 17 years with him. Um, and I think perhaps uh, the, the, the biggest takeaway uh, for all these years since has been his commitment to um, be in God's Word every morning before he did anything else. And more specifically, he read um, from the Old Testament and the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs every day. And by reading a chapter of Proverbs every day, you read Proverbs, you read the book of Proverbs every month and 12 times every year. And so I, I would estimate I've read the book of Proverbs 300 times in my life, the, the whole book, 31 chapters. And I've, I tell people all the time, if you were not a Christian, if, if you were just a totally secular person and you read a chapter of Proverbs every day, it would make you a better person, a better father, a better wife, a better spouse, spouse, a better parent, a better child, a better employer, a better employee, a better citizen. There's so much wisdom in that book. And now, you know, to have children uh, grown and married, reading Proverbs every day since they were, you know, in high school, middle school, um, is a real blessing that that's, you know, been passed down now. To a third generation through my father, um, so I, yeah, I, I owe my father a lot. Well, thank you so much for joining 
Thanks. joining me today, Mark. I appreciate your insights and appreciate your leadership and uh, friendship. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on DanielDarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster, assisted by David Clossom, and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you.